Hi, welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. This is episode four in the book of John titled The Wedding and the Temple, where we discuss John chapter two, verses one through 25. Andy, this is a very interesting beginning of Jesus's signs in the gospel of John. We went through the prologue in chapter one. We learned that Jesus was in the beginning with God, and indeed he was God, that he became flesh, that he dwelt among us. We learned about John the Baptist, the herald, the messenger sent ahead of time to prepare the way, proclaim the way, and get out of the way, and then how he announced that Jesus was the Lamb of God. And then we saw Jesus start to gather disciples, how John pointed out the Messiah, the Lamb of God, and how the disciples followed him. But now John turns in chapter 2 and starts what many have called the Book of Signs. What can you tell us about this chapter? Yeah, the Gospel of John is a marvelous work in which the Holy Spirit, uh, John, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, arranges his presentation of Jesus as the Son of God in four main sections. Uh, The summary of the entire Gospel is at the end of John chapter 20, where it says, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So uh, John, in his uh, Gospel, organizes it into four, four sections, the prologue, which we've already been through, And then Jesus' public ministry, that would be his ministry to a mixed audience of people who will eventually believe in him, who already did genuinely believe in him, and those that would not or did not. Uh, And then Jesus' private ministry, uh, which is the night before he's crucified, that's uh, where Jesus takes time to uh, wash the disciples' feet and instruct them in many things and then pray for them. And then crucifixion, resurrection. So the account of Jesus' death and resurrection. So that's a four-part outline. Now, the public ministry of Jesus, that long section that goes from chapter 1, I think verse 19 is the way I would mark it. Others mark it differently. But from 119 on uh, through the end of chapter 12 is Jesus' public ministry. It's broken up into two kind of main sections. Jesus, seven extended teachings and seven miraculous signs. There's other things in there, but that's the bulk of it. And this will be the first of the miraculous signs. And verse 11 is going to be the key. It says that Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. So that's the purpose of the miraculous signs, to put Jesus' glory on display. We're also going to talk about the cleansing of the temple and how Jesus predicted the greatest sign of all, which is his own resurrection. And that on the basis of his resurrection, would all people ultimately believe in him. Right. Well, for the sake of our listeners, I'm going to read the entirety of chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did in Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. 
After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The passer of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken forty-six years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people, and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So my first question relates to verse 1. Why do you think John informs us that it's the third day? The third day from what? Well, it seems like he's, he begins a count in chapter 1 uh, from when, when John points to Jesus and says, uh, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And then on the next day, on the following day, and now we're in, into this, the third day. So it's the third day since really um, Jesus being revealed to Israel as the Lamb of God. Um, he's not going to continue to count the days uh, like this. It'll, it'll end at some point. But, you know, others have seen some theological lining up with uh, days of creation or different other things. It's hard to know if that's what John intended. But I think at least simply we can say it's a counting of days from when John the Baptist identified who Jesus was. And what about the reference to Galilee? At the end of this uh, little pericope, it says it's the first of his signs in Galilee. And then at the end of chapter 4, it says the second one in Galilee. Is there any significance to miracles being done in Galilee? Well, I believe that it's okay to think that the changing of the water into wine was just straight out the first miraculous sign Jesus ever performed. I mean, up until, I mean, this is the third day since he was identified, um, and, and that was his coming out to Israel. He was an unknown man before that. And so I think it's reasonable to assume that he did no miraculous signs before he was presented publicly to Israel by the forerunner, by John the Baptist. So I really think this was straight out his first miraculous sign. It just happened to be in Galilee. Now, why in Galilee? Well, God in his wisdom chose that Jesus would begin his public ministry there, that Nazareth was up in the, in the region of Galilee of the Gentiles, the very prediction that had been made in Matthew, um, sorry, in Isaiah uh, chapter 9, which Matthew's gospel points out uh, very plainly that Jesus did this. He began his ministry in Galilee as a fulfillment of the prediction made in Isaiah 9, the way of the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. So God chose to begin the, uh, the ministry up in that northern region of the nation of Israel. Now, why is it a big deal that the wine ran out? You know, many times the alcohol runs out at a party, but why does this seem to be a, a big problem and so Jesus' mother intervenes? Yeah, I wouldn't know that much about it. You just read a lot of the uh, the commentators and they tell you some of the background that, you know, weddings are a big deal in every culture. They were a big deal in Jewish culture. And it wouldn't just be, you know, a few hours. They were going to, it was a feast. It was going on for a long time, uh, maybe a week, something like that. But it just also shows um, just 
the lavish hospitality of the host uh, family and their generosity and all that, in this case then, it would reflect very badly on that family. It was a minor tragedy, you know, it was a poor planning. And so it really would expose this family uh, to shame and ridicule. And it seems to me that Jesus' mother knew them and was concerned about them and uh, brought the matter to Jesus' attention. But, you know, I think it was, it was a big deal because that was, the, that was the, the liquid that was being offered. I think people didn't drink water up out of wells. Um, it was frequently, you know, disease-ridden and all that. And so Paul tells Timothy to no longer drink water but take wine because the wine would kill all the bacteria. So this was what they had to drink, and now there's nothing to drink. So that's a big deal. Mm. What do you make of Jesus' response? It seems a little disrespectful to his parents, but we know that Jesus perfectly honored his father and mother. Yeah. But you know, he says to her, my hour, he calls her woman, woman, my hour has not yet come. Right. What do you make of his response to her? Well, I think we need to understand the significance of her bringing to him, Jesus, a guest at the party, the problem with there being no more wine. And the fact that after he says, says this to her, she says, to the servants who are in charge, do whatever he, Jesus, tells you. So it's a, what did she expect him to do about it? It'd be one thing if she came and said, they have no more wine, isn't that interesting? Oh, what a problem, and they're having a topic of conversation. No, if you take the whole conversation, what Jesus says, what she says, and, and how it all goes, she expected him to do something about it. So at that point, I think it's really important that Mary, a godly woman, very much a godly woman, chosen and highly favored. One of the f only two people I think we find in Scripture that an angel commends, saying that you're highly esteemed, the other being Daniel. So here's a woman that's godly and highly esteemed, but she's still a woman. She's still a human, and, and the issue is not so much that she's a woman. She's just a, a flawed, sinful human being. But even more, she's his mother. And here we need to be respectful, but say, look, there comes a point where a mother needs to stop mothering her fully grown son. Jesus is 30 years old now, as Luke tells us. He's come out now. He's beginning his ministry. We can't have this, okay? We can't have mom coming and saying, do this, do that, might I recommend, here's a suggestion. Jesus is clearly, and John's gospel makes this more clear than any other gospel, taking his marching over orders from his heavenly father, not from anyone else, and not from his earthly mother. And so he, to some degree, has to respectfully put her in her place. The time for her giving these kind of suggestions has got to end. He, she can't be, you know, it's not going to be by her drumbeat that he's going to do miracles or go to this place or do this. Yeah. But then he does do this miraculous he does end, gift. End up doing it, yeah. And I, here's the thing. I was raised Roman Catholic, and there's, um, there, there is in the Catholic heritage or history a cult of Mary. And a lot of that cult of Mary takes its strength from this interaction. And the idea is that you can go to Mary and Jesus will go, or sorry, Mary will go to Jesus to get him to do things. So you go to Mary to intercede for you. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. So that's the Hail Mary. And so the idea here is that Mary would be, uh, to some degree, uh, a mediatrix, a female mediator between God and man, and that is absolutely not true. So he does what she wants, but not like that. <laughs> yeah. What is the purpose of the stone jars? Why were they set there, and how does Jesus use this as an opportunity to really manifest his glory? Well, I think what we need to understand, I, th I think the point that John's making is this was a huge volume of water. This was not a small amount. This is a massive amount. Six 
stone uh, uh, jars uh, used for ceremonial washing, holding between 20 and 30 gallons. Now, if he turns into high-quality wine, what would that be worth? I mean, just think of the worth and value of that volume of wine. Now, I'm not a wine drinker, alcohol drinker myself, but, you know, you look at that and, and, and you say that would be worth a lot of money. So I think the, point, the only point he's making here is that this was a super abundance of high-quality wine. We haven't gotten to the quality yet, but, I mean, this is a lot of water that he turned into wine. How does this kind of miracle just put Jesus's sovereignty and divine power on display? Well, um, a miracle is, is actually very hard to define. Um, definitions of miracles are, are, you know, they frequently have problems with them. I think if we have a robust, energetic doctrine of providence, we realize that God the Creator is actively working all the time. As Jesus says in John 5, my Father's always at His work. So we don't want to speak of God interfering with nature as though He's violated it. He's stepped into nature and He didn't belong there. He is holding up nature every moment. So, um, However, there is an aspect of the way things normally go, the way that things unfold in nature, the way gravity works, the way that fermentation works. Wine, for example, we know, takes a long time to turn uh, into high-quality wine. The fermentation process takes a while, while, and we think about something being aged like fine wine. The idea is that it, it, it takes a long time. You can think of wine cellars where you know, a certain vintage from a certain year is put down to just be there for a long time. And just the storage of that will cost money. And so you can see the older it is, the more expensive it would be. But, you know, it ages like fine wine, that kind of thing. And so uh, Jesus, the, the miracle here is that he could so quickly, instantly actually, turn water into high quality wine. That's amazing. Let's talk about how the miracle was revealed. Jesus commands the servants to take the water to the headmaster. Mm-hmm. And then he discovers that it's, like you said, high-quality wine. Mm -hmm. Why do you think John highlights this unfolding process? Well, I think we need to realize that the the Bible is history. It actually happened this way. And so he is bringing us by by very efficient language into the scene so that we understand what happened. Uh, It's almost like we're sitting there and we can see it happening. And the servants are filling the jars with water. And and then they draw some out at Jesus' word and take some to the headmaster. And he tastes it. And... And he realizes what it is. He's, this is his job. He knows good wine from, from bad wine. And he didn't realize where the wine had come from, but the servants knew. And so the servants were the, the witnesses. And so that's really the point. The point is, how do we know that this miracle has happened? Because the servants said, look, that was water. We know because we're the ones that filled the jars. It wasn't wine. And so suddenly we've got this, uh, this high-quality wine. And even that, we've been mentioning about the high-quality wine. It's the it's the headmaster, the one that's in charge of the banquet, that de- deemed it that way. He went to the bridegroom, and he calls him aside, and he, he basically said, I don't understand why you've done it like this, because he didn't know that Jesus had done a miracle at that point. The servants knew, but he didn't know. He said, look, everyone serves the high-quality wine first when the people are able to appreciate it. Later in the feast, when they're not as able to appreciate it, because they've already drunk some of the wine, um, you know, he says that we bring out the lower quality wine, but you've saved the best to last. And so that's remarkable. The best quality wine uh, was uh, made instantly by Jesus. And, and that's what we mentioned uh, about how this is a miracle because high quality wine takes a long time to ferment. Now, let me say something. I'm going to make an aside here because this is for me um, a, a key point when it comes to the creation evolution debate. 
one of the important features for me is to realize that God has the power to create a fully formed Adam, a, an adult Adam from the ground. Adam is a fully grown adult. He's not a toddler. He's not an infant. Um, he's a fully formed adult. And Eve, from his side, a fully formed adult woman. They're not mismatched in age, and he's got to wait for her to grow up. She's, a, she's ready to bear children. She's an adult instantly. So in the same way, here we have this water that's instantly turned into apparently aged wine, but it's not old at all. It's, it's a few moments old. And so I think it's important for us as we look around at what science tells us is a, is a universe and an earth that seems to be quite old, we have no way of proving how old it is. It's impossible to prove it. All we can do is look at what is here. We don't know how long it's been here because God is clearly able to make instantly something that appears quite old. Whether he's done that or not, I don't know. Six-day creationists uh, discuss these things. Those that are long have age gap theory. There's all kinds of different ways of looking at creation and evolution. But it is a factor here to consider that God is able to create something fully formed instantly. We, he, we do the same thing with uh, the miracle of Jesus giving Malchus an ear. When Peter had cut off um, this man's ear, Jesus touches it and basically creates a new fully formed ear. God has the power to do this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. What's the theological significance of Jesus starting his ministry with this kind of miracle? We have to realize and comprehend, take in the, the role that wine plays in the Bible. Wine is seen to be generally a blessing from God, but because of human sinfulness, it's turned into a curse. And that's because people, uh, through the flesh, what flesh does is it takes something that God intends as a blessing and it pushes beyond boundaries that God sets up into sin. And so it is with all aspects of the flesh. You know, eating becomes gluttony, drinking becomes drunkenness, sleeping becomes uh, being a sluggard, sleeping too much. Uh, marital relations pushes over into all kinds of sexual immorality, uh, beyond boundaries that God set. So you take something good. But the Bible uh, clearly presents wine as a blessing from God. And so we have this in Isaiah where it says, come, all you um, who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy, without money, wine and milk and uh, water. And so these three drinks are there in Isaiah 55. And Isaiah 55 is talking about the blessings of the gospel. And so I heard one meditation once, and it stuck with me, how wine and water and milk all do different things for the body, and they therefore represent different aspects of God's blessing. Water is just simply for life. Without, without water, we die. And so come by the water of life. Uh, milk uh, represents nourishment. You think about newborn babies getting all the nutrients they need in a mother's milk. Wine represents joy. It represents celebration. So here they are at this wedding. They have no more wine. Huh. It's a hard time. They can't celebrate in the same way. And so Jesus enables them lavishly and with high quality to celebrate. And so I think there's a, a beautiful symbolism here. I love it. As you were talking, there's this verse I wanted to read. It's from Joel chapter 3. It's talking about when Judah will be restored. And it says, In that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, mm. and the hills shall flow with milk. So you yeah. mentioned those two yeah. together. And all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and, the, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord. It's beautiful. And so when the Messiah comes, these yeah, come. all those drink, all those yeah. drinks. That's marvelous. One final thing. Why is this text not about whether we should or should drink alcohol? Because I think sometimes when Christians debate this, they immediately go to the wedding of Cana, and I think they miss something significant by kind of relegating the story to that debate. 
Well, I think it is relevant in this regard. Clearly, Jesus is not against the drinking of fermented beverages, as some will put it. Um, that if, if it had been a sin to drink wine, then um, he wouldn't have turned the water into wine. I think the, the point is in verse 11. We, we just need to zero in on if the, the, we want to know why this account is here and why Jesus is doing it. He's revealing his glory as the Son of God. And as a result of that, the disciples put their faith in him. And so the connection between miracles and faith is strong in John's gospel. That's what he's doing. But I think it is important for us to realize, I call wine biblically a dangerous blessing. I think you need biblically to see that the Bible gives significant warnings about alcoholic beverages, many of them, and both in accounts of Noah's drunkenness or other people getting drunk and doing outrageous things, um, but also the fact that it's portrayed, as you pointed out, as a, a blessing from God. And so what we want to do is avoid legalism and license, as always. We want to avoid those twin dangers. If I choose, as I do, to not drink al- alcoholic beverages, and I do that for my own reasons, my own family reasons or other things that I just it seems best to me not to, and we have a wide array of very safe drinks. They've figured out with pasteurization and other things how to deal with the amoebas and all that, so the water's good. Everything's fine. So I just don't see the need to drink alcohol, but it would be wrong for me to judge others' decisions in that regard as long as they don't get drunk. If they do get drunk, then it's a, it's a sin. It has to be addressed. So all of that to say, this is relevant. It does bring us some data, but it's not the reason why it's in John's Gospel. Right. Let's ask one more question from this account of the wedding. Um, you do mention that he manifests his glory, and John says this is the first of his signs, and that's kind of a loaded word in John's sure. Gospel. Can you give us a little more about the theology of signs in John? Well, I think the way we use a sign is to point to something, to represent something, to tell us what it is, or perhaps uh, if it's a road sign, to tell us how far to the city that we're driving to, uh, something like that. So it's frequently coupled with the word wonders, signs and wonders. I think the way I would want to look at it is the signs point to a reality that isn't here yet. The kingdom of God is coming. It's not here yet. And so when we think about the perfection of wine, uh, the perfection of wine is the fullness of joy that we'll have in the new heaven and the new earth when there will be no more corruption, there will be no more decay, there will be no more sin, there will be no drunkenness. But there will be a joy far greater than any could ever have come from wine. The Holy Spirit, uh, the fullness of the Spirit's ministry will be for us in heaven. So it points to reality. All of the healings point to a time when there'll be no need for any healings, uh, point to a time when there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. There'll be no dysfunction. There'll be no abnormalities, no diseases. So Jesus' healings were only meant to be signs. They're real. They actually happen. The water really did turn into wine, but it's a sign for something bigger, something greater, something that isn't here yet. Yeah. Let's make a transition and talk about the temple and how Jesus cleared the temple courts. Before we do that, can you just paint a verbal picture of what you know about the temple and the different courtyards and the different colonnades and just paint a a picture for people so they can kind of visualize it and then we'll talk about what Jesus did. Well, it's a whole temple complex and so it'd be hard for me to go into all the great detail of it, but um, the, the temple complex was the focal point of Jewish religion and the focal point of their animal sacrificial system, which we discussed at length in the podcast in the book of Hebrews. And the animal sacrificial system was established by God to point ultimately to the death of Christ on the cross. But it was still going on because Jesus was operating under the old covenant uh, at that point. 
And so there was an outer court called the Court of Women in which Gentiles could not go, but any Jew could go, men or women, um, children, anyone. And then, uh, you know, there were there was concentric cor courts that went into the holy place and then ultimately into the most holy place. And the most holy place was the place where the uh, blood of the sacrifice was offered by the high priest on the Day of Atonement. So in the outer courtyards, the outer areas of the temple complex, there would be concessions. Um, there would be places there for... Um, for people to sell animals that would be sacrificed. You could buy an animal there. And so the people would come, maybe from a great distance, and not want to carry a sheep or a goat or lead a bull um, all that distance, so they could just bring money. Uh, but they would come from outer regions, and there would be uh, currencies that would not be used at the, in the temple, so they had to change money into the temple shekel or the temple currency. And then they could use that money to buy a sacrifice. The problem was what was going on in the temple area is that the whole thing had been hijacked by corrupt men, Annas and Caiaphas, the high priest and his family, to make huge amounts of money. Uh, Josephus tells us that were, there were as many as quarter of a million uh, Passover lamb sacrifice at Passover. So that's a lot of animals. So what was going on, the whole thing was a scam, a religious scam. And what was happening was the worshipers coming from a distance were perhaps they were bringing their own, their own lambs to offer, but they wouldn't be accepted. Uh, they would be inspected and there'd be some defect that would be found and the animal would be confiscated and probably sold tomorrow. Okay, but it'd be confiscated, but there were some pre-approved lambs over here that you could buy at an elevated cost. Uh, in the temple shackle. In the temp yeah, it, but you don't have the money. So you have to change your money, and there's a price for that as well. They're just making money hand over fist. They're becoming hugely wealthy. And Jesus sees all this and is utterly enraged at how all of this has been turned into an opportunity to, to make money. Hmm. So what does he do then in verses 14 through 16? Well, the first thing that he does when he sees this is he is determined to cleanse the temple. He's going to drive all of these corrupt people out. And he sits down and makes a whip. And it's a very important image that we have. First of all, the idea that uh, the whip uh, had to be made. It took time. And so this is really a picture. It's, it's a literal thing that happened, but it's also a picture of the patience of God. You could imagine God sharpening his sword and it taking a century to, for him to do it. Think about the whole year that he waited for Nebuchadnezzar to repent from his arrogance. Uh, sometimes God kills somebody immediately, like wicked King Herod, who didn't give glory to God, and he was immediately struck down because he didn't give God praise. Uh, but other times, God waits, and he, he, it takes time. So Jesus took the time to make a whip. This was not a flash of anger. Jesus doesn't have flashes of anger. He knew what, what he was going to find in the temple. He knew very well. He'd been there his whole life. He went up there as a Jewish boy. He went up there um, every year in, in fulfillment of the law of Moses. So he knew what he was going to do. He was going there to drive out these animals and all these corrupt men. So he sits down and makes a whip. And then he gets up and uses it. And he drives these people out of the temple with great zeal. I think most people, when they imagine Jesus, they don't imagine this kind of passion and zeal. And I imagine it was a violent affair. Oh, yeah. What does this teach us about Jesus's, well, we're going to hear about zeal for your house, but just about the zeal for Jesus to do righteousness? Yeah, it, zeal is like a fire. It's a fire inside Jesus. Our God is a consuming fire. Jesus is no different from the Father at all when it comes to holiness and zeal. They're identical. He is the image of the invisible God. And so his zeal 
for his father's house equals the father's own zeal for his own house. And he is manifesting that. And so, yeah, I, I would imagine it was tremendously noisy. He's overturning tables. He's shouting. Uh, he's using the whip on the animals. It doesn't seem like he's using the whip on people. He's using it on the animals to drive them out, and he is cleaning that place up. And so what does it tell me? It tells me that he is zealous for the glory of God. I frequently actually use this image sometime in terms of my own heart sins, in terms of Jesus coming into my heart and cleaning it up and getting stuff out of there that doesn't need to be there, that is wickedness, and for him to take the whip to the corruption of my heart and drive it out. But fundamentally, this shows me that Jesus is zealous for the glory of God. And then in verse 17, it says, His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me, which comes from Psalm 69, 9, For zeal for your house will consume me, and the reproaches of those who approached you have fallen on me. Knowing that the temple is only temporary and that the people of God are the real temple, what does this teach us about Jesus' zeal for his church? Mm. Wow, that's a, that's a loaded question. It, it is just powerful. Let me, let me say, there's a number of things I want to say right now. First of all, the idea, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus is claiming that God is his father here. My father's house. It's the very same thing he had said uh, concerning uh, his father when he was 12 years old and he was at the temple. And so that's amazing. And then he's got this fiery zeal inside himself for the glory of God. But he's specifically, it's tied to the house of God or, or the temple of God. And it says, zeal for your house will consume me. And so his desire is that the people of God would be, would be radiant with the glory of God. And we see this very powerfully in Isaiah, I think it's in chapter 62, where he speaks, I think Jesus speaks, about a zeal for the bride. Isaiah 62 says, For Zion's sake I will not keep silent till your righteousness shines and your radiance like the, like the dawning of the day. And there's this sense of the glory of God in Zion. Get the same thing here. He is zealous that God's people be filled with the glory of God. Now it's very interesting. There's almost like a, a double meaning here when it says zeal for your house has consumed me. It's like it's eaten me up. You could almost say has destroyed me. Ultimately, this act, which he will repeat at the end of his public ministry, he does it twice. He cleanses the temple at the beginning here in John's gospel. He cleanses it at the end in the synoptics. They, you can't confuse them. They, they are two different cleansings. He does it twice. And that highly motivated the religious mafia Annas and Caiaphas, you don't cross their money-making scheme. You don't get involved in their money-making scheme. They're going to kill you. And so he knew that this zeal, this zealous act, would end in his death. In the book of Hebrews, the author says of Jesus, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. And as I've pondered that, I've often thought that, you know, we should think Jesus' thoughts after him. We should have his passions after him. How could this text, specifically about zeal for the house of God consuming Jesus, how should we Christians think about that and our zeal for the house of God? Yeah, we should start with ourselves. And like I mentioned earlier, I like to picture Jesus cleaning up my own heart with a whip. And I should, I should take a whip to my own heart too, um, that I should be just as zealous for my own personal holiness as Jesus is. And that's a battle, isn't it? Because the world of flesh and the devil are, are very powerful. The, the, the devil and the world are beguiling and enticing and they allure us with the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And the, and the flesh, our sin nature, resonates with that and wants it. 
And so our new nature, our, our redeemed nature, has to fight all that and, and oppose and, and put sin to death by the Spirit. And so we need to be zealous for our own holiness. But then in the church, we need to be zealous for each other's holiness. We need to pray for it. We need to teach toward it. We need to hold each other accountable toward it. We need to realize that someday we are going to shine like the sun in the kingdom of our Father. So the more that we have this hope that we will be pure as he is pure, the more we purify ourselves and each other now. That's First John 3. Um, and so I think this image is a powerful one uh, of commitment to personal holiness for ourselves and for our brothers and sisters. Yeah. Now the Jews ask for a sign. Verse 18, they say, What sign do you show us for doing these things? So why do they ask for a sign? Yeah, it's interesting. This is a clear demonstration of what Paul said uh, the Jews do in 1 Corinthians. He said, you know, Greeks look for wisdom and Jews ask for signs. They want a display of power, and they're going to keep doing this. There's no number of miracles that Jesus can do that will persuade them. And, and actually, at the end of the public ministry section here in John 12, you know, John sums all that up. He said, even though Jesus did all these miraculous signs, they still did not believe in him. And so there is no sign that he can do that will enable them to believe. And actually, the sign he points to here, which is his own bodily resurrection from the dead, doesn't convince them. So fundamentally, uh, the sign, their demand for a sign just shows their fundamental unbelief. Um, it's not enough for uh, them to you know, listen to his teachings, to observe his life. they got to keep having a steady stream of miracles, and even then, they won't believe. So that's what I get out of this uh, statement. Uh, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do this? Yeah, yeah I think it's like a smokescreen. I think we see this today when we do evangelism. People sometimes will say, well, you know, I didn't see the resurrection or I didn't see right. his miracle, so I can't really know. Yeah. It's like, is that really why you don't believe? I mean, they do everything. Look, look at this. They, I mean, they at some point ascribe his, his, his uh, exorcisms that he was doing, which are very dramatic miracles, um, that he is doing it by the power of Beelzebub, the prince of the demons. Um, he raises Lazarus from the dead, and their response is to try to kill Lazarus too. I mean, it's just what do you have to do? Uh, the man born blind. Are you the one, they say to the, the parents, um, is this your son? Is this one you claim was born blind? It's like, what in the world? What they faked it for yeah, 40 years. Yeah. How are you going to fake know? blindness? <laughs> That's just one thing you can't fake. All right. You, the moment you flinch when somebody, you know, like throws a punch but doesn't hit you. you know, you're, I mean, it's just, it, it's ridiculous the level to which their unbelief goes. Jesus says, this is his answer to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. So what's the riddle here he's giving them? Well, it's interesting because they uh, frequently, they're going to take Jesus' spiritual words and they're going to think of them physically. Nicodemus will do that. You know, how can a man be born when he is old? He can't get into his mother's womb and be born. Uh, the Samaritan woman does it. You have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. We're going to get this water. I mean, again and again in John's gospel, Jesus speaks spiritual things and they take them physically. Same thing, I think, with eat my flesh and drink my blood, that he's really speaking about spirit and life, not speaking about physicality. So they're always going to tend to do this, and they do this here, and he knows they're going to do that. When he says destroy this temple, he's not clear what temple he's speaking about. And it would be automatic for them to think that he's speaking of the temple, physical temple that he was there. And they answer, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. You're going you're gonna to raise it up in three days. But the temple he was speaking of was his body. So fundamentally, he is speaking about the resurrection of the dead. But now let's look what he actually says. They say to him, what miraculous sign can you do? Jesus says, I'm going to give you a condition. If you meet it, then you'll see the sign. The condition is destroy this temple. If you do that, I'll raise it up in three days. Well, first of all, he, they're not going to destroy the physical temple. 
But they are going to destroy the temple he has in mind, and that is his own body. So they will meet the condition by killing him, and he will meet his end. He'll raise it from the dead. And it's interesting, he says, I will raise it up. So it's interesting. Who raises the body of Jesus from the dead? Is it the Father? Yes. Verses clearly teach that. Is it the Son? Yes. He raises his own self up from the dead. Is it the Holy Spirit? Yes, it is by the Spirit of holiness that Jesus is raised from the dead. So all the Father, Son, and the Spirit are involved in the resurrection. So that's the fundamental miracle of Christianity is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Incredible. Jesus raising himself from the dead. Well, they respond saying it takes 46 years to build this temple and you'll raise it in three days. So they obviously think he's talking about the physical temple. And this is the very thing they're going to accuse him with in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, um, as, as he's on trial. They're going to say, this, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple and raise it up in three days. He actually didn't say that, but he did say something like it. And he said, you destroy it, I'll raise it. And so it's, it's, it's quite remarkable. Also, let's not miss the theological significance of the word temple for the body. Jesus is definitely linking the physical structure there where animal sacrifice was being performed to his own body as fulfilling the image and all of the old covenant animal sacrifices. His body is now the real temple. And you could say, well, what about the church? Isn't that the temple? Yes, because we have become the body of Christ as well. There is that combination. And also in Revelation, it says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lamb of God is the temple. Um, And so fundamentally, that is the new temple where we uh, receive atonement for our sins. Yeah. So John gives us an explanatory note in verse 21. He says, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. In case you didn't know. All right, but now we know very clearly what he's talking about. Then in verse 22 it says, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Why does John highlight that they believed the scripture? Wow, there's so much to say here. First of all, let's keep in mind how important this verse is for us understanding how Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were written. Jesus said very plainly that when the counselor came, he would call to mind everything that he had said. They didn't remember. Other things had happened. It had been exciting three years. If that's how long he ministered, maybe it was three years. But it had been exciting three years, and they couldn't remember every detail. That's just normal forgetfulness. It's okay. The Holy Spirit would call to John's mind, and not just John, but all the disciples, would remind them after the fact, after his resurrection, they would remind, the Holy Spirit would remind them of what he had said, and then give us that, give him that, or us, that fuller explanation of what uh, this meant. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. But it's interesting what you point out. They believed the scripture, and the scripture had to do with any prophecy having to do with the resurrection from the dead. John's going to make this very plain in John chapter 20, verse 9 where he said uh, that John saw the physical evidence of the resurrection, namely the grave clothes and the head covering, folded up by itself, the stone removed, the empty tomb. He saw and believed. Jesus would later say to Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are they who have not seen and yet have believed. But on, on what basis? Well, on this basis. In John 20, verse 9, it says of himself, he still did not understand from Scripture that Christ had to rise from the dead. So in the 40 days between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension to heaven, he taught the disciples all of the scriptures concerning his resurrection. The same thing with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. All of the scriptures proving that the Christ must suffer and rise from the dead. And so that's that was the basis of their faith. They understood the scripture that said he had to rise from the dead. Wow. 
Now finally to end chapter 2, it says that while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Mm. So what kind of belief is John talking about to which Jesus does not entrust himself to the, quote, believer? Yeah, that's a very important statement, and we get a fuller explanation of this in James chapter 2, where it talks about different kinds of faith. Um, Suppose someone has faith but no deeds. Can such a faith save him? James is saying no. So to bring up the question of such a faith means there are different kinds of faith. So we need to not be simplistic here. I thought everyone who believes in Jesus is saved. Well, everyone who believes the right way in Jesus. Okay, so in James, the demons believe things about God, but they're not saved. They're not in the right relationship. They have an information about what apparently is the invisible God to them. They don't see God either. So demonic faith implies that God is not evidently, obviously, gloriously in their face all the time. They don't see him. And they believe that he exists and that he is one, but they tremble, they shudder because they're not his friend. They know that he's their enemy. So that faith doesn't save you. And neither does a, uh, a faith that, has, uh, that claims to believe in Jesus, but it's word only and there's no deeds. That faith won't save you either. So what kind of faith will save you? The kind of faith that inevitably results in good deeds, in fruit. That faith in Jesus does save. And so here we get the same indication. There is a type of believing in Jesus that does not save your soul. You get the same thing with the parable of the seed and the soils, with the rocky soil, where the seed uh, falls into rocky soil and immediately springs up because the soil is shallow. But when the sun comes up, the plants are withered and they die because they have no root. Jesus, in interpreting the uh, rocky soil, says, this is the one who, who receives the word immediately with joy. Why? Because he's believed aspects of it. He's excited about certain parts of it. And so he changes certain aspects of his behavior, but he's not converted. And then when trouble or persecution comes, he shows that he's not genuinely converted. So Jesus knows what's in a human heart. And he doesn't need anyone to tell him what's in human hearts because he knows exactly what's in their heart. He says, I'm not going to tell you who I am. I'm not going to reveal myself to you because you're not really believers. One other thing is we need to understand this. Now the floodgates of miracles is open now. So he does the first miracle at Cana in Galilee. Okay, he doesn't do any miracles here at the temple. Uh, in this account, he just cleanses the temple. It's not a miracle. But he is doing miracles in Jerusalem now. Healings, I'm sure. Most of his miracles are healings. So the floodgates are open. Jesus is healing huge populations of people. And tons of people are believing in Jesus, but not really believing in him. Some are. Some are genuinely believing in him. But some of them are just amazed at the show. Yeah. In John 6, he starts with 5,000. And by the end, he's only got a few. Yeah. And I like what he says here. And it's a, we get the same thing at the end of both John chapter 1 and John chapter 2. Jesus knows Nathaniel by just looking at him. He knows that he's a true Israelite in whom there's no guile. There's nothing false. That's, he's, a genuine, he's a genuine article. How do you know me, said Nathaniel? I saw you. In other words, I just know you. By looking at you, I know you. And same thing here. These fake disciples, Jesus doesn't entrust himself to them because he knows what's in them just by looking at them, just by knowing them. He doesn't need anyone's testimony. He just knows what's in a man or woman's heart. And what that means is he'll be able to do judgment very well. On Judgment Day, when we all stand before him, he will know exactly what was in our hearts and how it worked out in our lives. Yeah. 
have any final thoughts on chapter 2? I think it's a marvelous uh, account of the wonder-working power of Jesus and of the uniqueness of Jesus and the display of the glory of God in Jesus. And so as we read it, the whole point of John's gospel, and for us who have been Christians even for many years, we read John's gospel and our faith in Jesus is renewed and deepened and strengthened. Amen. Well, that was episode four in the book of John. Please join us next time for episode five, titled, You Must Be Born Again, where we discuss John chapter three, verses one through 16. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.